You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Little uh, behind the scenes, a little inside baseball, little... Uh inside the actor's studio. Is that what that show is called? Um, Sam and I, like, eh, 25 minutes ago, we're like, all right, we're ready to record Three Strikes. And then uh, we just started talking about, like, other things in the industry, and uh, and then time ran out on the first room that Sam was in, and so we had to move rooms. <laughs> wasted all of the time uh, that you had, like, laid out in one specific location to record. So, uh, you know, we're we're flying today. I, I just think that was a warm up. That was like a vocal warm up. I think okay. we, should, we should all do that more often. It's um, like uh, it's like stretching before you get into a game. Yeah, exactly. It's the podcast version of stretching. Yeah. You know, okay, that works. You see guys out taking grounders, doing that stuff. We we just chat about our personal lives. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah nobody basically. gets to hear. Yeah, exactly. It's all uh, it's all the director's cut. Uh, but I delete all of it, so it'll never be accessible to anyone. And uh, so sorry, none of you are going to get to hear it. But I'm rest not. assured, it was I'm... all very positive and good. Yes. <laughs> um, so hey, welcome into this week's episode of the show before the show from MILB.com. My name is Tyler Mon. Sam Dykstra is in New York City. And uh, we are uh, recording our last one for a couple of weeks. Sam is headed off on vacation next week. I'm headed to uh, broadcast the Premier 12 tournament um, in which we discussed the United States roster last week. So if you missed that episode, you can go back and find it, MILB.com slash podcast or Apple Podcasts or Google Play or wherever else you find your shows. And while you do... You can give us a rating and a review and a subscription. Sam's headed to Ireland. Very excited for you. I am headed to Ireland. Um, yeah, I studied abroad there in 2011. I went back in 2013. Uh, now I am going back a very different person, I would imagine, than my college self. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm very excited. What was, to, to what was your tra- last Europe trip? Was it Scotland? Scotland was last year. Okay, okay. I was like... I, I thought you had been back more recently than that, but it was. People keep doing this. They keep confusing the, the Celtic countries, and it Jeez. it feels mildly. I'm a quarter Irish man. I I'm not. You know, I can I can vouch for myself. Yeah, you go ahead and hide behind the tricolor <laughs> and your uh, shamrock. You know, things you hide, <laughs> hang up at St. Patrick's Day. And, I have a very Irish name for being half Italian and a quarter Irish. It's true. It's very. I mean, weird. I have a Dutch My middle name, name is for Sullivan. Being, like, yeah, that's true. Irish, yeah, so. you're more you're more Irish than Dutch, and you got a Dutch name. Very yep, weird. It's true. It's very weird. Um, so let's uh, let's crack open this uh, this delicious gooey goodness that is the uh, latest episode, the two hundred and thirty-two two hundred and thirty-second of the show before the show. Uh, we are uh, dumping three strikes this week, just for this week. We'll probably get back together in a couple weeks, but uh, three strikes. Get out of here, Milby's. Open for your votes at MILB.com slash Milby. You can go uh, vote for the best in minor league baseball in the 2019 season. MILB.com slash Milby's with an S. I think both work, actually. But either way, uh, we're going to break down the uh, four biggest categories this year. Offensive pitcher, star, or offensive player, rather, starting pitcher, relief pitcher, and breakout prospect. And we will kick it off on the offensive side. Sam, give us the lowdown on nominees. for the, We do have our tuxedos on. It is our we award do. preview spectacular. And uh, here are the nominees for offensive player. 
Yeah, imagine us with our tuxedos on, which are actually on, so we don't have to imagine. Right, them. we're not That's imagining it at all. But also, instead of our usual mics, just imagine those like long mics that they used for Match Game and all those other. Like the Price is Right, Bob Barker's old. Uh, I think Drew Carey uses that too. But yeah, of course. yeah, right. There you right. go. So anyway, um, yes, top offensive player this year. All of these categories will have 10 nominees. All of them you can vote for at MILB.com slash Milby or MILB.com slash Milby's. Both of those links work, as Tyler said. Um, so offensive player. Dylan Carlson, uh, Cardinals outfielder, played at Double A Springfield and AAA Memphis this year. He's our first nominee. Kevin Crone of the D-backs organization. Ty France of the Padres organization, David Friedis of the Milwaukee Brewers system, Jared Kelnick of the Seattle Mariners, Gavin Lux, who we've talked about a ton on this show, of the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers, Mason Martin, first baseman from the Pittsburgh Pirates, Luis Robert, White Sox, top prospect, one of the top prospects in baseball, Josh Rojas, who started out the year in the Astros, ended it with the D-backs, and Jared Walsh. Uh, of the Los Angeles Angels, who is has worked as both a pitcher and a first baseman. Uh, this is strictly for his work as a hitter. Um, so yeah, we, we tried to mix it up a little bit because usually these these are just statistical performers. We should point that out. Um, these are not necessarily who who is the best prospect amongst offensive players or um, you know who has the best future or anything like that. This is just. Who in minor league baseball had the best year as a hitter? And a lot of that is going to be tainted by AAA. We know that. And we tried to reflect that at least somewhat in who we picked uh, for nominees this year. Um, you know, there there are a lot of the other good nominees that could have gone out there. I think Seth Brown was one of our last cuts. Uh, he was one of the leaders in home runs across the minors this year. But when you compare him on a WRC plus scale uh, to some of these other names like Carlson or, or Robert or Lux, uh, he kind of falls below the wayside. Um, so yeah, it, it's an interesting mix here. We have some boppers. Kevin Crone led Major League Baseball or Minor League Baseball, excuse me, in home runs this year with 39. Uh, Mason Martin hit 35 between the two lower levels of the Pittsburgh Pirate system. Also led the minors in RBIs with 129. Uh, so we have some boppers like that, but we also have more multifaceted players. I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, Luis Robert uh, being a 30-30 guy. Uh, I think he was one of two in the minors this year. Kyle Tucker being the other one who just misses the mark here. Uh, Jared Kelnick had a 2020 season. Uh, Dylan Carlson had a 2020 season. Uh, Josh Rojas had a 2020 season. It, there, it kind of comes down to what is your favorite flavor of offensive player? Um, you know, for me, I think it might come down to Robert versus Lux. Uh, what both of those guys did over multiple levels was astonishing this year. The consistency they showed over multiple levels was astonishing. They weren't somebody who just stayed out in one place all year. I think it's difficult to move up a level and continue to hit the way they did. Uh, Robert in particular finished with an OPS above 1,000 at 1.001. He had the third highest WRC plus of this group uh, at 170. You mix in the 36 stolen bases, you mix in the 32 homers, the counting stats are there, uh, the percentage stats are there. Robert is is an excellent pick. Lux is right there though, we should point that out. Robert had a 170 WRC plus, Lux had 166, so just a a smidge lower. I know when Baseball America made their picks for player of the year, they went with Lux because what Lux did was 
he performed the entire year at the upper two levels of the minors, double A Tulsa and triple A Oklahoma City. Robert did extremely well at class A advanced Winston-Salem. Uh, and that goes towards his numbers here. But it was very clear that he was too advanced for even that level. Um, and once he moved up to Birmingham, the numbers came off a little bit. And then when he moved up to Charlotte, they were still really good, but not quite as good as they were at Winston-Salem. Does Lux earn credit for doing it at the top two minors the entire season, uh, as opposed to Robert, who had to you know dominate the lower level? Uh, that that's up to you guys to decide. We will be we already had our staff vote. We'll be announcing our staff winner here in a couple weeks. Um, but what I really like about this group is just the diversity of player. It's not just okay. It's very clear that this player was be- better based on OPS or this player was better based on home runs. Uh, you can mix and match to, based on you know what you think makes the the best offensive player in minor league baseball and who had the best year. So uh, a lot of a lot of interesting candidates here, and can't wait to see how the the fan vote shakes out on this. Um, Ted Williams once hit 400 and finished second in American League MVP voting. Ty France nearly hits 400 he slashes uh over 1200 with his ops 399 477 770 and uh he might not even he would finish in your top three you're saying yeah no that's the thing about ty france that he really needed to be on this list and i actually had somebody reply to me saying like well where's jordan alvarez and at a certain point we do have to cut it off for yeah Played appearances. Uh, Ty France played 76 games this year in the Padres system. In the minor leagues, he got called up to the Padres uh, at certain points of the year and actually just missed the cutoff to hit potentially 400 in the minors because he got called up to the majors. That's a pretty good reason. Um, I, I really wanted to include him here because he was very close to meeting those qualifying standards. He fell just a little short. Uh, and for me, that loses points for him. I mean, 76 games versus 122 for Robert and 113 for Lux. Yeah. Um, you know, that hurts his case slightly. But you could definitely make the case, and Tyler's doing it there, that nobody was more productive when they played in the minor leagues this year than Tyler. If you're willing to overlook the sample size and, and – vote for and even because you know he was obviously a triple a so 399 a triple a is not going to look the same as 399 in the fsl obviously but when we adjust for league factors he still had a 196 wrc plus which is better than kevin crone at 182 better than robert at 170 lux at 166 um yeah i mean ty france i i would hope would get lots of consideration for this so we'll move on from uh, an offensive side to the uh, pitcher's mound. Star pitcher nominees for the 2019 Milby Awards are, you know what, I'm going to run through them, then I'm going to have you break them down. I like that. that. Uh, Chris Bubich of the Kansas City Royals organization, who was with Class A Advanced Wilmington as well as Class A Lexington this year. Uh, Joey Cantillo, the San Diego Padres. Seth Corey with the San Francisco Giants. Zach Gallen, uh, now of the Arizona Diamondbacks, formerly with the Miami Marlins. Logan Gilbert of the Seattle Mariners. Mackenzie Gore, no surprise there, of the San Diego Padres. Josiah Gray with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Christian Javier of the Houston Astros. Joe Ryan with the Tampa Bay Rays. And Tariq Skubal of the Detroit Tigers. Yeah, so uh, this is kind of a, a similar mix once again in, in terms of what do you favor, guys who have played at multiple levels or guys who have dominated one level. Uh, there's a lot more movement in this list, I would say, than the other one. 
Um, maybe the one guy we actually gave credit to, you know, sticking at one place was Zach Gallen. Uh, Zach Gallen po- posting a 1.77 ERA this year in the Pacific Coast League is absolutely insane. Um, only 91 in the third innings, and I think he kind of runs into the the Ty France problem a little bit there. Um, but a 0.71 whip is absolutely incredible. Uh, you got the strikeout kings here. Uh, I'm thinking of Bubich, who I think led the minors with 185 strikeouts and 149 in the third innings. Uh, Joe Ryan struck out 183 in 123 in two-thirds innings as he moved up the ladder three times. Uh, Tyler mentioned Mackenzie Gore. He's definitely the best prospect on this list, and I think – you know, has to be given a lot of consideration, not just because he's a name we recognize, whatever, but the guy posted a 1.69 ERA in 101 innings. Uh, Very difficult to do. I think he just missed minor league qualification for that, but he was so far away, the the leader in ERA, I think that it's a little bit easier to overlook um, than it was for maybe France. In those 101 innings, he struck out 135. He walked only 28. It's that mix that I love of high strikeouts and low walks. I usually think that works out really well uh, for a future projection. So, you know, maybe you're leaning somebody towards Gore, but there's some other names on here that I don't think a lot of people necessarily heard during the year. Christian Javier uh, striking out 170 and 113 and two-thirds innings was absolutely insane. Keeping his whip below one at 0.97, keeping his ERA low two at 1.74. I I like to sometimes include FIP in these. And, you know, Joe Ryan is obviously going to stand out because, again, he was somebody who struck out a lot and walked a few. Um, But Tarek Skubal, his run down the stretch with Erie, you know, we were paying so much attention to Matt Manning and Casey Mize that Tarek Skubal was striking out double digits of guys every start down the stretch for Erie, he ends up with 179 strikeouts and 102 and two-thirds innings. He had a 2.42 ERA. FIP actually thinks he was better than that at 2.11, uh, which is the second lowest FIP of anybody in this group. Absolutely incredible. Uh, you really can't go wrong here. I mean, they, there's some arguments to be made here and there and whatever. And, uh, you know, I think when we had the staff vote for this, it was all over the board, which I personally love because that means we have 10 strong candidates. Um, but whether it's top prospects, names you're going to recognize, Mackenzie Gore, like I said, is there. Uh, Chris Bubich, I think a lot of people kind of knew coming into the year. Logan Gilbert, who will be joining us on the podcast this week, we'll get into his candidacy with him directly. Uh, but him being a first-round pick, him performing very well in his first full season, lots to like here. And uh, I'd be interested to see how the fan vote totals are going to come in here as well. Where you have good starters, you like to have good relievers as well. See how I segued that? Uh, relief pitcher for the 2019 Obie Awards uh, includes this group of nominees. From the Seattle Mariners organization, uh, Deison Arias, who pitched with the Class A Advanced uh, Modesto Nuts as well as Class A West Virginia in the South Atlantic League. Luke Barker with the Milwaukee Brewers. Aaron Barrett, uh, he of the emotional video being told of his return to the major leagues with the Washington Nationals. Uh, Robert Broom of the Cleveland Baseball Club. Sam Delaplane in the Seattle Mariner system. Demarcus Evans with Texas. Uh, James Renchak 
uh, with Cleveland. Jackson Reeves with the Toronto Blue Jays. Sam Selman with the San Francisco Giants. And uh, Alex Vesla with the Seattle Marin or with the uh, Miami Marlins, rather. Um, there is an interesting group of dudes. Uh, Alex Vesey is a guy who uh, this season, I mean, I think even going into the year, there's probably not a lot of Mariners fans who are aware of his uh, body of work. He goes out and climbs through three levels. Well, I feel like we get a lot of those stories kind of similar to Vesia and guys that come in, blow their way through a few levels in a system, and all of a sudden they're in this conversation. It's like, man, I didn't really know a lot about him before this. He was a 17th-round pick last year. Um, we've got a handful of guys like that. Yeah, reliever is low-key like one of my favorites um, just because it, it's such a – these by definition minor league relievers are failed starters before they even become a chance to become starters right. uh and i don't mean to put that that on them uh right from the the get out in this category but uh you know they they have to meet this higher threshold to climb quickly as they do and when they do major league organizations love nothing more than a quick moving reliever uh, finding yeah. a guy whose stuff is going to play at every level and you know they only have short looks so they want to test these guys as quickly as they can um, so you know you are going to get somebody like James Karinczak who you know I think at, at one point the Indians really wanted him in the major leagues probably by the middle of the summer he had some injury issues but you know once he started dominating again for Columbus uh, after coming back from his injuries uh they moved him into the major league bullpen because they were like all right this stuff is going to play let's just let it go uh but yeah th this group you may not know a lot of them I think maybe the biggest name is Karen Check just because he struck out 74 and 30 in a third innings and was starting to pop up for people who maybe for fantasy purposes were trying to find a future closer. Um, but DeMarcus Evans is at least somebody Rangers fans have heard about before. He had a 0 0.90 ERA in 60 innings, uh, struck out 100, walked 39. That's the thing you're going to find with even this group. Even the best of the best of the relievers are going to sometimes struggle with control. Um, but you know somebody like Jackson Reese who I think went undrafted is now eligible for this award because he had a 0.73 ERA, lowest of the group, uh, struck out 88, walked only 15 in 61 and two thirds innings, puts himself on the map. I mean, when you are a minor league reliever, a lot of it comes down to stuff, but they need to see that that stuff is going to play because you only have three batters maybe uh, to show that you're going to need to turn that into results. You're need you know, we talk so much now about guys going to 100% effort a lot quicker. That's especially the case for minor league relievers. Uh, so to see this stuff play for somebody like Jackson Reese, who was signed as a free agent last year, uh, you know, it's 25, but dominated both Lansing and Dunedin is really special. Um, you know, I could I could cite all the the stats I want on this. They're all on the Mildes page. Uh, dig into some of these blurbs as well. There there are a lot of really good stories here. Uh, you know, guys trying to work their way back up. I'm thinking about Aaron Barrett, who had multiple arm injuries, uh, missed all of the 2016 and 2017 seasons, had to play last year Class A short season Auburn. This year gets sent to Double A Harrisburg and leads the minor leagues in saves. I mean, you'll look at his numbers, 2.75 ERA, and think, okay, that's not that special. But the fact that he was the minor league leader in saves, and it wasn't even really close, uh, I think the next closest was like 25 or something like that, shows you the Nats know what they had in him. They were going to give him opportunities to shine, and he took advantage of those opportunities. And that's what we want reflected on these Milby pages. 
And our final category to break down is the breakout prospect of 2019. And those nominees are from the San Diego Padres, catcher Luis Camposano, uh, from the St. Louis Cardinals, outfielder Dylan Carlson, right-handed pitcher Davey Garcia of the New York Yankees, second baseman Robel Garcia of the Chicago Cubs, uh, right-handed pitcher Josiah Gray of the Los Angeles Dodgers, shortstop Marco Luciano of the San Francisco Giants, right-hander Grayson Rodriguez with the Baltimore Orioles, outfielder Julio Rodriguez with the Seattle Mariners, left-handed pitcher Tarek Skubal, who we already talked about a little bit with the Detroit Tigers and outfielder Alec Thomas with the Arizona Diamondbacks. Yeah, so this one is mostly is like the most opinion based, I think. Um, this isn't necessarily just looking at statistics, trying to figure out the best statistical year, uh, which you can still debate, like I, I've said in the last three segments. Um, this one is more how do you define a breakout? Because it is you voting. I can define it for you. I will give you my personal definition of that. But how do you define it and how do you want that reflected? Because, you know, we'll have somebody like Dylan Carlson, who was an unranked prospect at the beginning of the year. And I mean that outside the top 100. Uh, he climbs all the way up to number 25 overall right now. He was the Cardinals eight ranked prospect at the beginning of the year. He's now their top prospect. Some of that has to do with graduations, et cetera. But still, he made very obvious and significant climbs. I'm thinking about in home runs. I think his previous high was 11. Uh, he hit 26 this year. Uh, they also allowed him to run more. He had 20 stolen bases before he had, I don't think he had broken into double digits before in that category. The breakout there is very easy to see. Uh, but then you have somebody like Robel Garcia, who is one of my favorite stories in the minors this year. Uh, he was basically signed out of Italy. He was on a travel team that went through Arizona, seemed to do really well there. He, he basically last played pro ball in 2013, and he topped out at Class A. They send him this year, the Cubs do, the Cubs sign him out of Italy after he played a little bit of ball over there, again, traveled over to Arizona. Um, they send him to double A. He finishes the year in the majors. Uh, that is a very obvious and clear breakout. But, it, you know, he's not a top 100 prospect by any means. He's now the Cubs 26. Uh, that's not crazy, but it's a great story. Maybe you value stories in that way. Uh, you know, uh, Tarek Skubal, we've talked about before, he was the 20th ranked prospect in a Tiger system that we all agree is, is pretty good uh, coming into the year. Now he's number four because of those strikeout numbers he was putting up at Erie. And he, people think he's going to be right there next to a Matt Manning and a, a Casey Mize in that Tigers. Or the, the breakout there is very clear. Uh Josiah Gray, who we didn't mention before starting pitcher Milby, but he's nominated for that as well. Uh, he's now the number 76 overall prospect. He was kind of, when he was thrown into the trade last year with the Reds, uh, seen as like, okay, he's a make weight maybe, or he's something, you know, the Dodgers are taking on, uh, you know, just to even things out. We'll see how this goes. He was a division two shortstop, moved to the mound full time, uh, very raw. We'll see what happens when he, kind of chisels it his way at it uh, you know now one of the top right handed pitching prospects in the game um because of the what he was able to do over a full season breakout there is very clear and i think some of his stuff certainly improved this is not just hey we need to trot out this guy more um his velocity was good uh his overall pitching arsenal was sharper than we were expecting so how, how do you weigh these different things? Is it, hey, this is the guy who climbed the highest? Is it the guy who started from the furthest down and is now on the map? Um, that That's up to you guys to decide. Personally, I like the guy who made it 
or who went from, you know, a prospect to a potential superstar the most. Uh, you know, we I think in past years, Ronald Acuna has won this award. I remember writing up that story. Uh, you know, somebody who wasn't necessarily being talked about, but it, now everybody has to pay attention. That's what I think defines the defining breakout prospect of the year. You might differ. Uh, there's a lot of good candidates here as well. You know, we've got four pitchers and six hitters. How do you weigh a pitcher versus a hitter? That's on you guys to decide. But yeah, this is my favorite category, I think, by far, just because of how differing the opinions can be as opposed to when you're just looking at numbers. So go vote, MILB.com slash Milby's. Uh, exercise your civic duty on uh, casting your ballot for the best in minor league baseball in 2019. We're joined on our award spectacular uh, podcast this week uh, by number 48 overall prospect and number three prospect from the Seattle Mariners system, Logan Gilbert, who, as we've mentioned, is a Milby nominee uh, for starting pitcher of the year. Logan, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? Hey, I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. So I want to start this from the top. This is kind of our Milby Award special podcast. Uh, as I mentioned, you are a nominee for tar- top starting pitcher of the year from a statistical basis. Um, you know, what is your kind of reaction to the year you're coming off? Uh, it's your first full season. You didn't even pitch in your draft year. Uh, kind of put it this season into perspective for us. Right. Yeah, I think it went pretty great. I mean, just about any expectation I could have had, I felt like it was right around there, especially, like you said, not pitching on my uh, draft year right when I came out of college. So um, just wanted to, um, you know, prove to myself what I had and carry from any momentum I had from college into pro ball. And I felt like uh, this year did a pretty good job of that. Yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll start with this as well. Speaking of the Milby Awards, now that you are a candidate, uh, why should people vote for you? Why kind of stump yourself for yourself a little bit here? Um, you know, what about your year do you feel like stood out and, you know, people should vote for you for? Um, gosh, I mean, I think the, the statistics kind of do a big part of it. Um, kind of petitioning for yourself. I feel like I put up some pretty good numbers and was pretty consistent, uh, from the three levels I played at. All the all the numbers look pretty consistent across the board. So um, that was it. Just trying to take it to every level and prove that I was the same person. Yeah, and we'll just back you up right there. You started the year at Class A, uh, West Virginia, one five nine ERA there. Class A advanced Modesto, one seven three ERA there. End the year at Double A Arkansas with a two eight eight ERA. Uh, you ended up being Texas League Pitcher of the Week at, at one point. That consistency obviously carried through. Um, at what point did it feel like it was going to be a special year for you? Um, I mean, I think somewhere in the middle, I felt like all my pitches were getting closer to the feel that I wanted, the shape that I wanted. And from there, it was just uh, taking in into the game, having that same aggression and uh, execution. And I felt like week to week, I was doing a pretty good job of it and got a lot of help from the coaches along the way that I really felt like things were clicking. So I guess that's that's where I kind of got a feel or idea for it. Mm. And when you go back to you know your first spring training, uh, you had never gone through that process before. At, at that point, you're usually pitching as a college pitcher. Uh, and think back to where you were then and where you are now. How would you say you've grown the most as a pitcher? 
Um, I think just the some of the confidence in my pitches that I might have not had in college as much. Um, I could kind of rely on certain pitches going into where I was around March. And, uh, you know, you find out that you just got to find different ways to get hitters out because every level you're facing really, really good hitters. And it just makes you grow as a pitcher and have more confidence in some of the pitches that you might have not thought were your go-to pitches before. Mm. And what were some of those pitches you feel like you weren't really using much in college or uh, in, in the spring that you grew confident in by the end? I think um, going to both breaking balls and being able to do that to either righty or lefty, a lot of times I relied on the curve. And I think towards the end of the year, my slider was my go-to pitch. So that was a big transition there. And then also being able to increase the amount of change-ups, trying to have a higher percentage of change-ups every game I went out there. So I felt a lot more confidence with that. And being able to throw it to right-handed hitters was a big plus. Hmm. So what what is that pitch doing when it is being effective against right-handed pitchers uh, or hitters rather uh, I know a lot of guys talk about changeup isn't something you need to throw necessarily when you're younger but as you jump to the pros they need to lean on that so when you throw a successful changeup what does that look like uh, a lot of it has to do with the spin I get on the ball I try to being able to throw it to both sided hitters is just trying to have some of the depth and not as much run naturally I'll have a little bit but just trying to have the depth and keep it under the zone where I can match it up with you know high fastballs or other pitches that play vertically in the strike zone Hmm. and it's interesting to hear you mention spin because I remember talking to you back in August and you talked about spin direction and how that's more of a thought process you've had this year in pro ball than you ever did before uh, kind of speak to that a little bit. What what is it? What have the Mariners given to you in terms of tools to understand the spin of your pitches, and how do you implement that into your game? Yeah, definitely. That's a big part of it. I mean, going into this year is something I kind of figured out along the way, so I'm really excited to know what clicks for me going into the season and being able to use that. And with the spin direction, it's just um, some of the numbers that I'm chasing in the axis of the spin, but. You know, we, we could use Rapsodo in bullpen setting. We could have catchers give feedback or hitters. And we've even uh, drew on baseballs with a marker to try to see what kind of spin you're getting to uh, make it easier for the eye to pick it up. Mm. So when you say numbers-based, are you looking at the hard data more or are you watching video more? Uh, how do you kind of break down you know, that aspect of it and trying to figure out what's working? A lot of the times, yeah, I think I'll go for uh, numbers a lot of the times, but we, we've also get, got into the edutronic and really being able to slow it down and see at release where the ball is coming out. And you kind of get to see the way the fingers play into that and the wrist uh, positioning. So um, being able to trace it back a few steps all the way to, you know, the way your wrist is set up or the way the fingers come across the ball, it's a big way to be able to manipulate the spin that you want. Mm. And coming out of college, you know, do you feel like that was a little bit of an education process for you to understand that stuff? Or did you just dive right in and, and understand, hey, this is something I've never seen before, but I'm ready to use it day one? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I didn't have much of an idea at all. Um, I was really interested in it and the concept, but I didn't know much. And at first, I was just exposed to a ton of different stuff and kind of overwhelmed. But that's just, a, you know, a credit to some of the coaches and the coordinators that we have with the Mariners being able to um, just take you step by step through the information and find what works for the player and I quickly found the things that I think are important and they did a good job of working with me on that yeah so would you 
describe it more as like a blanket organization wide approach to pitching? Do they talk to all their pitchers the same? Is it more individual based and they just found something that worked for you? You know, based on what you've seen with coordinators and all that, how would you describe the Mariners approach to pitching development? Yeah, definitely individual. Um, they do a good job of wanting to see how the players learn and what kind of experience they have in the past and trying to take that with them, but then also introduce new ideas and uh, find some certain things. We've probably talked about things that didn't click and also talked about things that did. And it's just being able to find what works for that pitcher. And because at the end of the day, we all want the same goal to get better. And they just want to find the way that's going to help us do that the quickest. Hmm. And, you know, this being the only organization that you've known, obviously just through two years of pro ball, basically, but at the same time, how have you seen the Mariners system grow? Because I think when they took you, you know, in 2018, not much was really thought of this organization. They go out and they get Justin Dunn, Jared Kelnick, Julio Rodriguez breaks out. Some of these guys you played with uh, there at Arkansas. What has the growth been like just in your short, short time uh, in the system? Yeah, it's been really fun to see. Um, just from the time I came in, you know, all the stuff with, some of the analytics and numbers and all the data that we're putting into it, but more than just numbers, I think a big part of it's the people up top and the people within the organization, the culture that these coaches and players are trying to create. It's done a great job of keeping it competitive within the organization and then trying to grow together to, you know, put the, the final product together at the top one day. Mm. And when you describe the, the competitive nature within the organization, how does that kind of play out? What are they doing with you guys to kind of breed that competition? Um, I mean, a lot of it, I think, could be natural. Just the players that we have with, I mean, just from my perspective, with the, the pitching staff and everybody, you know, your biggest supporters are going to be the other four starters around me on whatever team I'm on. And But at the same time, we're competing with each other in bullpen settings in the game, trying to have the best numbers. Um, some of the, some of the end-of-the-year, like, games that we – had within the organization to see who threw the most first pitch strikes or one, one strikes or stuff like these trying to win the big counts. I think that's been a big part of finding that competitive nature within us. Hmm. And you finished the year with double a Arkansas, as we mentioned, that was one of my favorite teams to follow uh, down the stretch. Obviously you guys had some success going to the playoffs and I'll get into that in a second. But uh, what was that team like when you first joined it? You know, Justice Sheffield was in that rotation at, at one point. Justin Dunn was in that rotation at one point. Both of those guys end the year in Seattle. Evan White's on that team. Kelnick, who we've already mentioned. Um, you know, what was that locker room just like when you guys kind of realized, hey, the future of Seattle is here with the Travelers? Yeah, I, I mean, it was pretty fun to step into it from day one and just look around and know that these are some some really big names and also really great people to be around and push each other and be competitive and yeah we did we did kind of I think everybody was really focused on the year we were having but also you look around and you think these could be the guys that are in Seattle one day and in that locker room so it's a big part of um, trying to get the first step together play together win together and hopefully be able to take that up there one day mm. and you arrived in double a July 15th after that you made I think nine starts uh, what was your welcome to double a moment what moment did you feel like hey this really is the upper minors uh the major leagues is at least somewhat in sight now what was that moment for like like for you um yeah I mean I got up there just I think I went out there and 
just like you're going to be every first start, you might be a little nervous on any time you get promoted and would get out there. And um, I put a couple good outings together, but it seemed like every time I got to the fifth or sixth inning, I would just have a few runners on and they would find a way to capitalize. And then you look around and you're like, you know, these are some really good hitters and starting to move up in the ranks and the minors. And eventually I, I think I settled in and did a little better job, but that's just some of the wake up call that you get as you move up and finding a way to, put together consistent outings all the way together. Hmm. And so then you end the season uh, having thrown, you know, a hundred plus innings. I think it was 135. Yeah. 135 innings, which is a sizable amount for anybody in their first season coming out of college or otherwise. Uh, the Mariners make the decision to shut you down before the Texas league playoffs. And then Jerry DePoto, the general manager of Seattle gave one of my favorite quotes, which was, he's not going to be happy about this. And that's a good thing. So what was your reaction when you found out that uh, they weren't going to let you pitch in the postseason? They said, you hit your ceiling. We're going to end the year here. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was tough. Um, I wasn't really expecting it. I was trying to go back out there. And, of course, uh, I think I was slated for game one. And then we had the conversation. And, of course, I understand where they're coming from and all that stuff. Um, but in the moment, right when you hear it, uh, you know, it's not the best news. And, of of course, after such a long season and so many innings, this was the moment it all led up to that we're trying to win a championship for the team that we're on. And so to be able to hear that was kind of tough. But um, I think later on, it, it did make more sense with the reasoning that they gave. Mm. And according to the story by the Seattle Times, you found out hours before game one. Um, so what was that day like? Just take us through that. Yeah, it was tough. Um it was uh, just leading up to it, all the preparation and everything was the same. And then uh, you finally get to a moment where they do tell you. And uh, it's just, uh, I don't know, it's just being in it was, uh, you know, you do all you can to try to control your emotions and all that stuff. And, of course, I respect any decision they make. And I know that's the best for it, for me and for the team. So I just went with it. And it was it was a good conversation and all that stuff. No hard feelings. But. Just as a player, as a competitor, it is tough to hear. Hmm. And let's jump a little further back. Uh, going into your draft year, like we mentioned, you were a first-round pick. You were the 14th overall selection in 2018. Uh, during your junior year at Stetson, people thought of you as a pretty good prospect going into that. You had some time at the Cape League, and you had good numbers as a sophomore. Take us through that junior year when you think, okay, this is my time to prove myself. This isn't just, you know, trying to win college games. This is potentially pitching for my career here. Uh, what was that junior spring like for you? Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, for the most part, a lot of those thoughts that I had, even when I wasn't as big of a prospect or even going back to my freshman year when I was just uh, a guy, another right-handed pitcher in the bullpen, um, I think I always thought that for myself and thought I was that caliber player. It just didn't match up yet. So by the time I got to my junior year, I really felt like I was just, that's who I was. And I was now letting other people see it. And of course, there's a lot of work that has to go in and every week to week, you got to prove yourself. But um, I think trying to set that up in my mind before I was actually in that position really helped me out. Yeah. And at what point did you feel like you got that external feedback that, you know, everybody was beginning to see you were as good as you internally thought you were. Was it getting the invite to the 
the Cape League? Was it, you know, eventually moving into the Stetson rotation? What was the first point where you realized, hey, everybody else sees me the same way I see myself? Yeah, I think that was probably after I came back from the Cape League and uh, had a pretty good year, sophomore year, but there were still some questions about facing better hitters, better competition, stuff like that. And uh, I really felt like I gave myself a chance to prove myself there. And then, like you said, taking it back to my junior year and finishing it off and putting together a good career at Stetson, that was um, probably the big part to finish it off there. Mm. And you didn't come just from any college program. I know you said facing better hitters, but this is a program that apparently really knows how to develop top-level starting pitching. Uh, there are the two top two you know, players all time from Stetson are Jacob DeGrom and Corey Kluber. You're looking to kind of be that next third big pitcher. Is there any reason why, or that you can maybe articulate why, you know, good pitchers come out of Stetson like this? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough to explain. I've heard that question a lot. And I think some of it is just the culture and the expectations that pitchers have going into there, knowing some of the names like that, um, paired up with some really good pitching coaches throughout the years. Uh, pitching coach there, Coach Therno, really kind of shaped my career once I was there. And being able to look up to guys like that, that's just that's the expectation. That's the dream that you have. So uh, that's just some of the work that goes in is dreaming upon being one of those guys one day. Yeah, I was going to say, what what is the trickle-down effect on that? I'm sure recruiting is much easier when you have Jacob DeGrom competing for a Cy Young every year. Um, but by the time you get to the program, you know, that's seven, eight years after DeGrom left. Uh, what kind of trickle-down were they saying, like, hey, these are the two guys you guys should be aiming for? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that actually one of the days I went on my visit to Stetson was the day DeGrom won the Cy Young Award. Oh, so it was, it was, yeah. It was pretty cool to be there on campus the day that happened and being able to be, you know, if I spend a few years here and then hopefully be able to play pro ball one day. And, you know, it, it, the dream probably started that day when you, you look at a guy like that going to Stetson and making it all the way, winning the awards um, and the show. So that was a big part of it, being able to look up to people like that. And uh, so now you are going into your second off offseason. Uh, last year at this time, you know, you weren't pitching in pro ball yet, so you didn't know exactly how that worked. You've gone through, like we said, 135 innings of this. Uh, what is this second offseason going to be like for you? How is it going to be different now that you've gone through one of those before and now that you know, you know, what it's like to go through a professional summer? Yeah, I think the scheduling will be a lot uh, easier uh, to plan out, kind of work backwards, backwards from the time spring training starts the season all the way back to – um, workouts, what I want to get better at throwing, all that stuff. I have more clear, concise goals that came from, you know, the end of, se end of season meetings. And now I'll be able to take that into off season and know what I need to get better at and be ready for next season. Hmm. What were some of those things that they highlighted in those me meetings that you're going to be tackling, especially in the off season? Uh, some of the stuff was location scores, location based on where my pitches play better. So um, trying to execute uh, more consistent parts of the zones with each pitch. And then um, other stuff is just consistency of the shape of certain pitches, like my slider that uh, I think took big steps in this last season, but now it's kind of taking it to the next level of making sure I'm throwing the same exact type of slider every time. Mm. So kind of piggybacking off of that, 
anytime anybody ends the season at double A, you know, the majors is somewhat within reach next year. Do you feel like that's a reasonable goal for you for 2020 to, to reach the show? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, that's, that's always been the goal since I was little and now kind of being within reach of it this year. That's definitely the goal. I, I hope, uh, it all comes down to me actually being out there and doing my job and executing. But I think at some point in the year, that's definitely the goal that I want to be up there. And so what do you kind of imagine that first pitch being like, uh, you know, you don't know, sometimes guys come up as relievers just so they get moved in a little bit. Maybe you'll be making a start given the way things are going, you, they would probably bring you up as a starter. But when you kind of close your eyes and envision what a first major league outing will be like, what do you see uh, in your own head? Yeah, of course, I'd, I'd like to start. Hopefully that's the idea once I get up there. But either way, um, at the beginning, just to be up there, that's a dream. I mean, I'm sure I won't be able to feel my legs or anything like that. <laughs> but uh, it's you know, like I said, it's always been a dream of mine. So as long as I have the ball and I'm on the mound, I'll be fine. All right, so we'll end on this one now that you are in the offseason. Are you back home in Florida? Yeah, I am. Okay, so you've played all over the place this year. Obviously, we've already mentioned West Virginia, Modesto in California, Arkansas in the Texas League. Now that you are back home uh, in Florida, what did you miss most about Florida, and what did you, what were you looking forward to most about just having a couple weeks and months back home? Uh, for me, I, I mean, I love Florida ever since I was a little kid. I think going to the beach is a big part of it here, having some downtime to do that. And uh, just spending time with friends and family. Uh, we've been gone for so long in the minor league season, so now it's it's a big part of it, getting to enjoy some downtime with the people you love. Hmm. And speaking of beaches, what is your go-to beach then? Where, when you think of, like, this is where I need to go to the beach, because uh, you're from the Orlando area originally, right? Yeah, yeah, hey. yeah. So that's a little more landlocked. Which side of the uh, – do you go Gulf side or Atlantic side? We usually go Atlantic. New Smyrna is about an hour away. That's usually our spot to go to. All right. Well, very cool. So if anybody is looking for a Florida tip here in the cold <laughs> months of winter, you just got one from Logan Gilbert. Logan, thank you so much for joining us. Congrats on all the success from 2019. And uh, enjoy the, the start to the offseason here. All right. Thanks. I appreciate it. One of the most uh, anticipated rebrands of the season is here, and with us to discuss it and a whole lot more is Benjamin Hill. Hi, Ben. Hello, Tyler, and hello, Sam. Hi, Ben. Sam just waved to me. In an audio format. I'm sure that came across on the podcast like it always did. Uh, yeah, how's this is tux- a wave file. How's this, this tuxedo? Is a wave. Ah, nicely done. Uh, how's the tuxedo look on Sam? Pretty good for our awards preview show? As we- I'm changing to something more comfortable. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. I don't know if you have or not. Our lamest dad joke five seasons <laughs> is, still, is still flying strong. Well, let's break it down. The Canapolis Intimidators uh, are no more, and the Canapolis Cannonballers will roll into the 2020 season in the South Atlantic League. They're headed into a new ballpark, and they are uh, headed into a new identity that um, – is a really cool one, and there's a lot of interesting historical elements to it. The identity of the city of Kannapolis uh, added into it. Ben, run us through this new identity in the Sally League. Yeah, the Kannapolis Cannonballers. It is a, uh, a unique name. I, I like the overall uh, idea behind the name, uh, but I do think it is one. I mean, it's the Cannonballers, and if you look at the logo, go to milb.com, check out the story. You look at the logo, it is a... Mustachioed man in like a uh, 
tight suit, you know, jumpsuit, having just gotten shot out of a cannon. He's got a baseball head. Goggles. Which should not be overlooked. When yeah, you say yeah. he's a man, he's a man with a baseball yeah, head. Yeah, yeah. He's a man with a baseball head who just got shot out of a cannon. But he looks like you're a, you know, a, 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 a daredevil, a guy who makes a living, or a baseball-headed uh, being who makes a living getting shot out of a cannon in addition to probably sundry other daredevil endeavors. Um, but they're the cannonballers, and, and that's the image of uh, this real stuntman uh, kind of throwback circus vaudeville energy. When the team announced uh, the new name, they did so at a theater, a historic theater in Kannapolis, and uh, shared a long video explaining it all, uh, but all kind of around this circus carnival festival kind of theme, the Kannapolis Cannonballers. And obviously that speaks to the atmosphere they want to provide at this new ballpark. That's also what precipitated the name change is moving into the new ballpark. You know, it's minor league baseball in a new ballpark in the 21st century. You want the sort of crazy circus-like family fun. You never know what you're going to see vibe that, you know, a cannonballer, uh, I think, conveys. So there's that. You can look at the the name and the logo and just, I think, get that sense of fun that, that is conveyed in the name. But why Cannonballers? Uh, first and foremost, Kannapolis um, is called Kannapolis because a man, James Cannon, founded what became the largest textile uh, producer, I think, in the world for, for a time. Uh, literally put Kannapolis on the map. The city is named after uh, Cannon. You know, early earlier variations on the city name were... Uh, you know, Cannonopolis, unofficial one. So this was literally not a city until a the Cannon textile mill was built uh, on the land and it became Cannapolis, which is in itself a reference to the Cannon Mills company producing textiles. They made a lot of, uh, you know, towels in particular. Uh, but, uh, you know, huge operation that, that was founded in the late 1800s and, and ceased operations in 2003. So you can't tell the story of Kannapolis, uh, you know, without the Cannon Mills Company. And in talking to Matt Millward, the team's general manager, he said, you know, I think the number one fan suggestion was cannons, the Kannapolis cannons. And uh, I also talked to Dan Simon of Studio Simon, who did the logo. And he said, you know, I understood the appeal of cannons, but in his view, one, there's potential you know, copyright issues. There's other teams on the landscape uh, named Cannons, uh, including some former minor league baseball teams, uh, the Calgary Cannons and uh, Prince Potomac. Cannons. Yeah, the Prince William Cannons uh, before they became the Potomac Nationals. So not only were there previous minor league teams named the Cannons, there was other entities on the landscape. And he was also saying – you know, a cannon, you know, however archaic it is, is still a weapon of war. And when you're talking about minor league baseball family fun, do you really want to brand yourself around a weapon of war? Uh, good point, I believe. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, I think and, – and, and then he was saying, you know, I went to Kannapolis and I was trying to get a sense, a consensus from the people who live there, all types of people. Um, did they want to celebrate this cannon – Mills Company history and, and the importance of the Cannon family and the Mills and what that meant to Kannapolis, or did they want to move on because the Mills have been torn down? There's now a downtown revitalization of which the ballpark is a part. Are we looking towards the past, looking toward the future? How are we going to do this? Uh, so I think I, he found that there really wasn't a real consensus in 
and how people wanted to recognize this history. Some did, some didn't. And I think Cannonballers ends up as being, I think to me, a pretty creative and fun compromise of looking toward the future and Kannapolis, uh, what it is now, of signifying what minor league baseball uh, means to Kannapolis as they move into a new ballpark as part of a larger downtown revitalization, but also still giving a nod to uh, what made Kannapolis Kannapolis, which was the Cannon Mill Company and uh, producing textiles. So there's a lot going on here. And I think, uh, you know, pe- people listening, I think that's a lot. One of the reasons a lot of people like this topic, I mean, I don't necessarily mean just Kannapolis in general, but even when you look at a, a minor league baseball name as kind of silly or irreverent or goofy or head scratching as it might be, there's usually a lot to unpack. <laughs> <laughs> and one thing I really like about this, and they teased this out for a while too, is kind of the circus atmosphere that comes with a cannonballer and how that plays into the entertainment aspect of the sport. And the whole reason you make these identities is it's for entertainment purposes and for people to have fun when they come to the ballpark. Um, but how is that going to play into to this new place? Is, is there going to be a circus-like atmosphere? Or are they going to play this into how they develop this new park in any way? How are those going to go hand in hand? You know, I think the specifics on that aren't uh, aren't maybe out in the open yet or maybe even known. But again, in talking to Matt Millward, the general manager, he said that he and his staff made you know trips to the county fair to – uh, those type of places, um, you know, the same way that a front office staff might visit another ballpark to get ideas. They, they've been literally visiting county fairs uh, to get ideas. I think they see this as a good way to brand uh, the new stadium and, and kind of tie with the Cannonballer's name to tie it into a. He said, you know, there's going to be a lot of uh, more state fair style food. I think mm-hmm. even by the kind of unhealthy standards of minor league baseball, you might see even more you know, deep fried this or that or kind of real goofy midway style uh, food and games and that kind of thing. So the specifics are not out there yet, but I think we now have a clearer direction of where the branding will go. Um, and, and just like any new minor league identity, you know, a front office has to look at it of, you know, what are we going to be naming various portions of the stadium? you know, seating areas, entrances, you know, X, Y, Z, how are we going to name things around this identity? What food items, you know, can kind of play on this identity? What in our marketing materials can play into this identity? So I think they, they have a lot to work with now. And uh, I think it'll be fun to see what they come up with. And it'll be fun to check out this team and ballpark in 2020. So a new identity for Kannapolis. Uh, welcome to the Cannonballers to the minor league baseball landscape. That just feels like a a, uh, a logo set that's going to be flying off. Uh, and, of course, coming in in late October and you set yourself up for the holiday sales and stuff, this really feels like it's got the all the makings of a big one. Yeah, I, I believe so. And I think one other element we want to mention real quickly is – you know, the former team name, the Intimidators, was a reference to Dale, Arnhard, Dale Earnhardt Sr., a Kannapolis native, uh, who bought a share of the team uh, in, in just three months before he died in the 2001 Daytona 500. And uh, so he never got to see the team play as the Intimidators, but uh, the Intimidators' name obviously meant a lot to a lot of people in Kannapolis celebrating Dale Earnhardt Sr. and his legacy. So, you know, we talked about this before on the podcast, but it was a t- kind of a tough thing for some people to move on from and no longer referencing um, – the Intimidator's name, but one, I think the team wanted a new identity and a new ballpark. Uh, two, they don't own the Intimidator's name. Uh, you know, that's trademarked, and I think it's currently owned by Dale Earnhardt Sr.'s widow. And uh, three, though there's nothing explicit in the Cannonballer's identity to Dale Earnhardt, uh, there are some Easter eggs in the logo in terms of maybe how the 
uh, baseball man getting shot out of a cannon. He has some uh, signifying features that I think call to mind Dale Earnhardt Sr. Uh, there's some Easter eggs in the lettering that kind of tie into Dale Earnhardt and his legacy. So just want to bring that up as well and uh, take a study. Take a gander at the logos and uh, see what you can find. Hmm. Really cool story that's up on the site right now at MILB.com. And uh, there is a whole lot more going on as well. We had a, a cool um, guest reporter post, uh, Jay Kennedy, who is in his senior year at uh, Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology in the D.C. area. And he wrote an account of uh, going to the Diamond in Richmond, Virginia, to watch the Richmond Flying Squirrels play as uh, their Copa de la Diversión identity, uh, Las Ardilas Voladores, uh, the Flying Squirrels. And uh, this is a really cool story that's up on the site right now. It's kind of a, a point of view of what the, the Copa night was like at the Diamond. Yeah, you know, I, I it's been tough for me because when I had the blog, I did guest posts quite a lot, and I would actively solicit guest posts from guest writers. I think now with all my stuff on MILB.com, it can be a little more laborious to solicit work from other people and, and make it a, a, a feature on MILB.com proper. But Jay Kennedy, uh, senior at uh, Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, um, I've worked with Jay just because he got in touch with me years ago and a really uh, bright, ambitious kid. Uh, he'd written several guest blog posts through the years. Uh, last year, I met him and his father uh, at a Brooklyn Cyclones Copa game, and he wrote about that experience. Um, I think that was the same game that uh, Sam Dexter was at, as well as uh, Kelsey Hennigan. Were we? Yeah, I think okay. we were. He, Sam does not pay attention to the, to the, to the youth. <laughs> I was very focused on doing that, that podcast episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I, I believe, you know, I, I pay more attention to the youth and, and mentoring and, um, you know, being a, a positive influence. Okay, right sure. There. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to say that, you go right out. Sam's mad at me now. I did not mean I was being sarcastic and I apologize. Um, anyhow, met Jay in Brooklyn last year. He's uh, been a guest writer for me for quite a while and uh, check it out on the site. And, uh, you know, uh, it's just a fun thing to do to give every, uh, someone else a platform. And I hope to be able to do it uh, more often. And one other story we should tease out real quick. We've talked a lot about the Innovator Summit in El Paso, but you have a little bit more coming out about uh, the person who originally founded it when it was called the, pr the Promo Seminar. Well, originally uh, the El Paso Seminar. The El Paso Seminar and then became the Promo Seminar. Now he's the Innovator Summit and that went back to El Paso this year. Uh, what can you kind of tease about that story? Yeah, I got one more article coming up related to that. Obviously, we've talked about the Innovator Summit quite a bit over the last month. Uh, but it was in El Paso this year because the event had started in El Paso. And the reason it started in El Paso was because a man named Jim Paul, who was the owner operator of the El Paso Diablos, who really set in motion a lot of the promotional um you know, innovation that, that we now see all over minor league baseball. He was the original innovator. So when I was in El Paso, I did an interview with him and several other veteran executives uh, talking about the evolution of the event and the evolution of minor league baseball. So we're going to have that video up on the site along with an article around it, kind of with Jim Paul and other veterans uh, of minor league baseball sharing their views on, uh, you know, what things were like decades ago, what they're like now uh, and uh, what to look for going forward. All of that is up on the site or coming to the site at MILB.com slash Ben's Biz. And uh, you can find Benjamin Hill on Twitter at Ben's Biz and on Instagram at the Ben's Biz. And uh, we won't talk to you next week because Sam and I will both be gone, but we'll uh, catch up in a couple of weeks. Wait, I'm going to be all alone? Yeah, it's just you for the podcast next week. Nobody <laughs> <does that? laughs> Just you know an hour-long monologue. 
Yeah, do you know how to, to get a guest? No, but I can I can share my favorite songs and <laughs> observations. I know the Humpty Dance pretty well. This is going to become Ben's radio hour from from uh, your time at Pittsburgh. <laughs> yeah, ninety two point one WPTS. Any requests? Four one two three eight three nine seven eight seven four one two three eight three WPTS. I am DJ Futon signing out. Thank you. DJ what? Uh, Futon. Okay. <laughs> that was my name. I like it. I like yeah. it. And it will be your name from yeah. now on. Yeah, DJ Futon. Yeah, I'm going to definitely have to try to remember that for uh, our next conference. I'm very bummed now that we actually have a week uh, in between this one and the next one because I will undoubtedly forget DJ Futon, but um, I'll do my best to remember it. I want you to know. Good luck. Thanks, man. Thank you, guys. Final segment on this week's episode of the show before the show, MILB.com is your site for uh, all of it from our organization, All Star Stories, to Milby's, to everything else. Uh, you can check out the site. You can get in touch with the show, podcast at MILB.com. We will be off next week. Sam's going to be traveling. He's going to be uh, out of the country gallivanting around and having some fun uh, on the old Emerald Isle. I will be uh, down south of the border in Guadalajara, Mexico. If you are itching for post-World Series live baseball, uh, the Premier 12 competition will start on November 2nd. I've got the U.S. uh, in its opener that day, which is against the Netherlands at 12 o'clock whatever time zone Guadalajara, Mexico will be in by then because I don't know who switches times and Arizona's weird and Indiana's weird and daylight saving, whatever. But you'll be able to watch those games uh, live on YouTube if you're in the United States. And uh, enjoy the trip, man. Enjoy vacation. Yeah, no, and, and enjoy the Premier 12 tournament. Like, that's going to – I am jealous of when we talked about that roster and as it's constructed yeah all of those guys being on one team together is going to be yeah really really going to be a lot of fun yeah, yeah so i am uh i'm quite pumped we should have had this conversation like six months ago you could have come to mexico for your vacation yeah. and watch baseball yeah yeah uh <laughs> we should have that for next year let's, yeah, let's start absolutely. that ball rolling now uh, good friend of the show, Josh Jackson, has a, uh, a really good buddy named Tucker, who I've met a couple of times. Tucker came out here, big Dodgers fan, came out to Coors Field, watched the Dodgers here last year. We saw each other at spring training this year, and uh, Tucker and I were talking in spring training about how I was going to be going to Guadalajara, and he said, oh, I've been there a bunch for work, and he set a reminder in his phone for like early to mid-September that said, check and see, or early to mid-October, it said, check and see if I can go to Guadalajara, and he texted me a screenshot of it the other day, and he's like, I had no idea what this was about, and then finally <laughs> popped into my head, and no, I can't go to Guadalajara. And I was like, dang it. So uh, next year, we'll try to make it a big party wherever wherever I end up or wherever you end up or, or Josh or whoever. Yeah. <laughs> oh, let's let's, let's make plans on that. <laughs> All right. For this week's episode of the show before the show, he's Sam. I'm Tyler. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best stories is wasabi technology wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams including 20 major league baseball teams like the red Sox and nhl teams like the bruins and vancouver canucks even the liverpool football club is getting in on the wasabi action so why is wasabi the mvp well wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the amazon's 
of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. 